And co-sponsored by uh, Global Studies and Languages. I'm Ian Condry, and I'm the head of Global Studies and Languages, uh, and also in Comparative Media Studies. Uh, and it is my honor and pleasure uh, to introduce uh, Catherine Clark, uh, who's been teaching with us uh, for a couple years now, in her second year, an assistant yeah. professor here, uh, who works on 19th and 20th century France and visual culture. Uh, she's working on a book project right now, uh, Paris and the Cliché of History. I hope we'll hear a little bit I'll tell you uh, more about, about that. what yep. this cliché, this so-called cliché, is all about, yeah. which explores the history of Paris and the history of photography. Uh, she's interested in the ways photos are used as documents of the capital's past, uh, and also the dichotomy between professional photographers and amateur photographers. Uh, she works on various aspects of this. Uh, we'll be hearing some about that today. Uh, but Catherine also works with moving images, and it looks like that's <laughs> yep. some of the topic uh, today as well. Uh, I want to advertise that she's a co-organizer of a very fascinating series of talks, uh, the MIT Global France Seminar Series uh, that she does with Jeff Ravel and Bruno Perot. So I encourage you, uh, especially those with French interests uh, to keep your eyes open for those talks that are happening quite regularly. Uh, and also I would advertise some of Catherine's courses uh, on contemporary French culture and media, uh, but not just France, France in a global context and global travels. So her courses include Global Paris, French Photography, Contemporary French Film and Social Issues, Introduction to French Culture, and French Film Classics, uh, to name a few. Uh, we're going to have about a 40-minute talk, and yep. then we'll open it up to questions. Uh, sometimes this uh, colloquium goes till 7 o'clock. Our plan is to go till 6.30 uh, today. So we'll go a little bit shorter, but there will be time afterwards, even afterwards, to have an uh, intimate time with uh, us. Uh, not that intimate. Uh, it is French, however, so I get it. Anyway, no. I'm, I'm taking myself deeper and deeper in a hole. I will now stop. Stop talking. Uh, please join me in welcoming Captain Clark. Thanks, Ian, and thank you for that delightful innuendo about the possible Q&A after this talk. Um, so hopefully you won't all see me trip over. This is not a fashion accessory, but a microphone, so hopefully I won't trip on it. Um, uh, and yeah, I'm really excited to be here. I'm very thankful for being invited by CMSW, um, and I'm looking forward to your questions and comments. So I'm going to talk to you today about the Videotech de Paris, which was, um, yeah, can you dim the front lights? Just a second. Is that better? Should we take them all down? It's getting dark. But see if this goes off, and then you keep that over there. Yeah. I can see well enough, yeah, okay? yeah, 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 and I, I like it to be a little bit dark, because then you'll look at the images and not at me. Um, so, right, so I'm going to talk to you about the Videotheque de Paris, which was a moving image archive of the French capital that opened in 1988. Um, so this is the subject of a forthcoming article, so I hope none of you have two pointed of questions, because it's in the proof stages. Um, but it's also part of my current book manuscript. Um, so the manuscript itself, as Ian mentioned, is called Paris and the Cliché of History. And it's about the uses of photographs as historical documents of Paris from the late 19th century to the late 20th century. So it starts with uh, the formation of photo archives in the city, uh, which happened in roughly 1870. And it goes up until the largest amateur photo contest that had ever yet been held in France up until that point, which is called uh, 
this was Paris in 1970, and it called on 15,000 amateur photographers to document the capital in May of 1970, and it created an archive of 100,000 images. So if anyone was at my talk in September where I talked about this, because I know this will be familiar. And also just a, a sort of shameless plug, uh, France Culture, which is the NPR of France, just did an hour-long documentary about this photo contest in which yours truly features extensively. Uh, but it's also just a really great documentary. So if you're interested in the photo contest and you're a French speaker, uh, I highly recommend it to you, and I can send you that link. Um, so the book is really a kind of project about um, but the anxieties of the past, the kind of what does it mean for history to be slipping away, and how to document history and the past, uh, and how photography is going to change how we can do that. So what does it mean to have access to images from the past in the present that look so real, that are such an index of reality? So obviously video, the uh, subject of my talk today, is not photography, but this institution represents the continuation of utopian beliefs that had motivated librarians, archivists, collectors, and amateur and popular historians throughout the century. So there are ideas that new visual technologies would offer new and improved access to the past. They thought that having photographs would change the way that history was written and told. And so I want to argue uh, to you today that the Videotech offers us a window onto the possibilities, the negotiations, and the deceptions of technological innovations for the study of the past in the 1980s and 1990s. So I'm going to talk to you sort of in three parts. The first part, I'm going to tell you about the Videotech, just to give you a sense of what it was as an institution, how it worked. The second part, I'm going to uh, oh, and contextualize it within the self-conscious futurism of France in the 1980s. The second part, I'm going to talk to you about how, sort of explain how the Videotech incorporated the most up-to-date communication technologies uh, and applied them to this process of preserving the past. And lastly, I'll explain how the Videotech fit into wider discussions happening throughout uh, kind of French culture and also in universities about the difference between memory and history and the idea of pri um, privileging memory, so a personal connection to the past, over history, which was viewed as institutional and rigid uh, at the time. So the Videotech was an archive of fiction films, documentaries, television programs, and advertising with Paris as their subject or setting. Uh, and we had, they were collected and stored on videotape, as the name would suggest. It offered both public screenings of these materials and also access to its full collections in a kind of high-tech consultation room. So here, viewing stations that looked like this, so a keyboard and a screen, uh, offered as advertisements for the Videotech would promise all of Paris at your fingertips. Visitors could search the catalog and reserve their viewing stations from home via the Minitel. So if you don't know what the Minitel is, I will get to that. Uh, so just hold tight for a second on that question. Uh, when it opened in February 1988, organizers pledged that within a year or two, the whole archive would be available in Parisian living rooms, that the, the Videotech's collections were slated to be fodder for the Parisian on-demand cable channel that sort of launched but never really made it. This revolution was, however, more than technical. Journalists asked whether historians would ever again need to consult print sources, while politicians touted the networked archive as the very first of the, its kind in the world. So instead of history with its implications, as I just said, of institutional and hierarchical forms of knowing the past, the Videotech promoted, through these new technologies, memory, so a kind of personal, flexible, and ever-changing relationship to the past. The future that the Videotech foretold never really came to pass, and I'll, and I'll get to that, why I think this is a failed institution and why it really is a failed institution. But it, in its first years, it epitomized a play with historical time that defined Paris in the 1970s and 1980s. So a simultaneous investment in the past as the bedrock of the capital's identity and a, an investment in self-conscious futurism. So the latter drove the destruction and reconstruction of large parts of the capital in the 60s and 70s. 
as well as the conception of flagship architectural projects, which some of you may be familiar with. So the skyscrapers at La Défense, so a kind of business district built outside of the, uh, the city walls, the former city walls, which were replaced by um, a highway. Uh, or Ayampe's Pyramid at the Louvre. But this self-conscious futurism also ensured the creation of the photo contest that I just mentioned to you, the revival of photo collecting at the municipal institutions that I study, and the formation of this, the Videotheque de Paris. So critics have claimed that this self-conscious futurism entailed the destruction of the city's history. So this is a cartoon from 1970 uh, that pictures Paris uh, with the Seine, ringed by highways, the kind of all the buildings form this glass front, and just behind, over here on the right, in the midst of skyscrapers, you can see the Eiffel Tower. So the city has been subsumed by this futuristic vision of itself. Um, but part of this futuristic vision was new ways of preserving the past. So I think it's embedded within this futurism that the city's history would itself be preserved. By making almost a century of the Parisian past fully searchable and available on screen, the videotech would integrate the past the city was leaving behind into a compelling vision for the future. And the kind of placement of this institution really matters. It's built in the Forum des Halles, which is a shopping mall that replaces the city's central markets. I'm not going to talk about that now because I sort of pitched this talk as a non-French specialist talk, but I'd be happy to talk about that in the Q&A or the after Q&A if anyone is interested. So... Now we're getting to my second part, kind of what are these technologies and how is the videotech engaging with them? So I think in general, as Americans, we tend to think of France as technologically backwards now. French were quite late adopters of the internet. Um, but in the 1980s, France is, inc- is at the cutting edge of a lot of different technologies. So just to give you a sense of those, uh, Highways, France is enlarging its highway system in the 1980s, uh, and France has this constant problem of being over-centralized, so you see all the highways go to Paris, but they don't really connect in between each other. Uh, They're fixing that in the 1980s. The TGV, or the Train de Grande Vitesse, the very fast train, launches in the 1980s, so the first public voyage is in September 1981, and it runs from Paris to Lyon. Um, But a lot of these new technologies were really changing how people received and consumed information. So there will be a network of municipal media techs that are, that are founded in the 80s. So media tech, it's a neologism like video tech that takes bibliotech, so library, and, and fuses it with media. So places where people could rent videotapes, they could rent cassettes, uh, they'll eventually be able to borrow CDs, and just make a large variety of information, not just print sources, available to people. Um, but also the telephone and the Minitel networks. So finally, we get to the Minitel. So the Minitel is a video text online service. It's kind of pre-internet. And it launches uh, sort of experimentally in 1978, and it is made public, fully public in 1982. And it's initially put out by France Telecom, so the telecom system, to replace the white pages. So instead of getting your phone directory, you would be given a free Minitel, and then you would have free access to the white pages. Uh, and then you could pay for a variety of subscription services. So you could pay to, for example, uh, access your bank account or make train ticket reservations. Uh, eventually, it will be opened up to a private market, and then the most, the kind of most profitable of Minitel businesses will be the Minitel Rose, so pornographic Minitel services. So this ad says, "Make your Minitel blush." Uh, le sexophile, <laughs> and then it had the, the number down here at the bottom. Uh, so that will be a large part of Minitel traffic. Uh, also, chat rooms will first develop on Minitel, and I actually have a friend who met her husband in a, in a Minitel chat room. <laughs> um, by 1990, there was over, who's a, who's a curator of photography, so she's kind of intermedial. Uh, by 1990, there was one Minitel for every five French phone lines in France. 
Despite the spread of Minitels in the 1980s, television still had an even larger national reach. So in 1982, only 80% of French households subscribed to television services, while 96%, uh, sorry, they subscribed to telephone services, 96% had television sets. So France's next and last of my list of kind of technological revolutions would be cable. Uh, so the government launches, launches Le Plan Câble, uh, launched by Prime Minister Pierre Mauroy in 1982, uh, and this will be the plan to kind of connect all of France via, via cable. It will eventually fail, and I'll, and I'll get to that. Um, so the Videotech's organizers would sell its historical collections and its various modes of viewing them as part of the utopian promises of all of these various technologies. It's going to tap into all of these things. And the Salle de Constitution really represents all of these kind of utopian desires. So journalists, organizers, and scholars would gloss over the riches on offer in the communal viewing spaces of the Videotech's theater, instead reserving their praise for this, the kind of place where you could go as an individual and watch films or commercials or TV shows. So here in a room designed by Paul Chamatoff, the same architect responsible for the other interior spaces of this shopping mall, 30 lucky individuals at a time could dip into the deep well of Parisian history. Its shiny silver ceiling and floor tiles create a sort of futuristic setting. And I have to say, I have to thank Chemitoff for sharing these photos with me. And um, he was also very pleased to know that someone was working on this space. Uh, but most critics skipped over the room's architecture to focus on what it had to offer on its screens. So one journalist beckoned Parisians to take a spin in the videotech's time machines. Quote, settle into your armchair. Tickle the keys of the piano in front of you to choose the image of your dreams. Click yes, and less than a minute later, this image comes to life on your screen. Well, the sound emerges from the, quote, whisperers, so instead of speakers, they're whisperers, that frame the armchair and make the bothersome cables of traditional headphones unnecessary. So it's a kind of intimate sense of how you would approach the past. Through a simple series of text commands, the user could search the archive and select something to watch. This set in motion a three-armed robot who zipped along steel rails at the speed of two meters per second to select a video cassette from the stacks and insert it into the appropriate VCR, which was hooked by a fiber optic cable to the user's screen. So the viewing stations turned cinematic spectators into users and consumers, even producers of images. The Videotech's director, Veronique Callard, described how the Videotech stands in opposition to a regime of mass viewership, which is that, notably, of television. Here, each user was invited, quote, to make on her own, on the Minitel, her own video montage. Kala likened the viewing possibilities of the videotech to reading in a library, which is the very idea that was proposed by the title of this institution, right? So video and bibliotech, video and library, put together to form videotech, like this mediatech, all of these neologisms around, around viewing and consuming information. So Kala explained that the very possibilities of the VCR to, quote, pause, to rewind, to fast forward, allowed one to flip through a film, or even to watch the same film over and over again for hours. Of course, this new type of viewing was actually not all that new, and critics even at the time said this, that one said that uh, videotape was, quote, rather old-fashioned in 1988, uh, because the VCR had been providing novel home viewing experiences since the 70s. But the videotech improved upon home viewing by adding novelty, so the robot, and more importantly, by placing a range of documents at its, viewers, at its users' disposal. So when it opened in 1988, it had 2,500 videos or approximately 1,200 hours of footage that users could choose from. So a wealth of materials. The Videotech's searchable database and its seamless integration into the viewing station were touted as major technological triumphs. As a reviewer wrote in the history journal Ventième Siècle, 
video archives may not have been new in 1988, but having such a diversity of archives and the catalog to search them was. The Videotex catalog improved upon the traditional libraries. Each item's entry included a painstakingly detailed list of every space or location and type of character in the film. So it's incredibly detailed in terms of the cataloging. So it, as well as having information such as director, producer, or year of production available to search through. This detail made it possible not only to search for a film by name or subject, but also to find a specific scene or an image within the document. Uh, so if you were interested in, I don't know, trash collectors in Paris, you could search for them and not just get a list of titles that contained this word, but a list of just all the films in the archive that would have it. Moreover, the catalog did not require users to have prior knowledge of how to search a digital database. It responded to plain text commands. So organizers hoped that users might feel as if they were having a conversation with the computer. Uh, one could simply type in, for example, what do you have about the Eiffel Tower? And the computer would return a list of results. So it doesn't need the kind of uh, knowledge about how to interact with the database that we, that we have now as users. It may have seemed that the very same helpful machine then found the video in question and loaded it into the VCR. And the resulting images displayed on the same screen used to search the database, and this is something else that organizers will be extremely excited about, that there's this kind of um, union between searching and viewing, that there's a, a synchronicity of these two actions, uh, which serve to, quote, unify in the mind of the user the notion of searching and viewing session. That's a whole session in and of itself, uh, rendering direct access to the image a natural act. So the videotech's organizers purposefully clothed these futuristic technologies in the garb of Parisian history. So the, the archivist, is, uh, the archivist, the robot, is named Magnus. He's named after a three-armed cartwheeling dwarf in popular novelist Gaston Leroux's 1910 La Reine du Sabbat. Uh, and Leroux is better known not for this novel, but for writing The Phantom of the Opera, which is loosely based on uh, events that happened in Paris and the Opera House in, in the 19th century, including the flooding of the basements. Uh, so the, database carried, the databases carried similar historical and cultural references. So while the public only had access to one, which is called Fluctuat, that I just described, the Videotech used uh, three others. So NEC, a working tool for documents in the process of acquisition and cataloging, and Mergator, for, I'll excuse my Latin pronunciation, but I'll, I'll get to why I'm giving you these, uh, which was for all documents considered for acquisition but ultimately rejected, and Juris, which contained legal and technical information for every document in the connection. The first three took their names from Fluctuat Nec Mergator, which is the, Paris's Latin motto. So this is the city seal, and you see the motto here. Um, which means that she is tossed by the waves but does not sink. So the databases, which themselves bear traces of this history, therefore kind of hold this meaning twice, right? It's in the, in the name of the database and it's in the fact that Parisian history exists in the database, this idea that Paris, uh, Paris will never actually sink from memory. But perhaps the most spectacular possibility at the new videotech was not what went on in the viewing room or behind the glass wall that protected Magnus from the public or even in the database itself. Rather, it was the possibility that thanks to the newly developing cable network that, that the videotech on demand would soon reach beyond the walls of the shopping mall in which it was housed uh, into the classrooms and living rooms all over Paris. So in 1987, just one year before it opened, Jacques Chirac, who was then mayor of Paris, uh, his associate director of communications and later cabinet minister, José Fresh, announced to the press that the Videotech's collections would become the largest source of images for Paris's cable television channel, which, would be which had just been launched one year earlier. 
So the video text collection seemed the perfect answer to the French public, media critics, and public officials' hopes for cable television. And so one of the great things about working in the 1980s is that people are polling constantly. So you can have all the results of these polls. And so one of the things that when these institutions and individuals and cities are polling users in France about cable television, they're saying, we want to watch educational programming, we want better image quality, and we want to watch things about our city. So the kind of video text offers to wrap all of these desires into one solution. So the promise of feeding this cable network must have helped see the video tech to completion, because it's, kind of it's a long process, it's incredibly expensive, it's much more expensive than people think it's going to be. And the institution's story, as it's repeatedly told in these first years, always culminates with it being fully wired to the world. For administrators all over France, after all, but particularly in Paris, the idea of local cable programming would do more than just respond to the demands of potential subscribers. So as kind of scholars have argued since, but also people are talking about at the time, because cable is underground, it's going to be associated with other municipal services like water, uh, sewers. And so municipal administrators will take advantage of this association and imagine cable as something that will kind of re-stitch together social fabrics. So I have one municipal administrator, for example, in the 80s who, uh, you might know the next page, who will say that cable will help, quote, revive often misshapen or overstretched social fabrics. Kind of a, a big, it's a big claim. Um, but Fresh, who oversaw both the opening of the videotech and the launch of Paris's cable programming, firmly believed in this idea. He's fully on board with the fact that cable is going to make French society better. In a 1986 polemic, he warns that France was in danger of becoming, quote, a huge and flashy branch of the international image supermarket, with each of its citizens turned into passive communicators. He was really worried that France wasn't producing enough of its own audiovisual content. Uh, so the nation needed to make audiovisual interactive and teach the French people kind of mastery of how to use it, while also working together with the rest of Europe to increase programming production or risk losing its culture altogether. And if you think back to the kind of early 20th century, if any of you know anything about early film, these are discussions that's happening with France during World War I in terms of uh, decrease of production. Um, and by any of you, I mean students in my French film classics <laughs> course that's happening right now. Um, so the video tech, by piping history into homes all over Paris, and why not other countries via satellite, as its director suggested in 1990, could help turn Paris into the cultural capital of a newly networked world. Despite such hopes, the video tech never, never seemingly merged into the cable network. So in early 1990, Kayla... Uh, announced that the service télévideotech, so another neologism, right, television videotech, would launch within the year. But a year later, only the Lycée Turgot, which was a high school situated just a kilometer from the videotech, was wired to the institution. Uh, in 1992, Jean-Yves de Lépinay, who was head of the Videotech system of documentation, promised that it would soon start testing local access again within the year on, for uh, Paris cable subscribers who lived in the 12th and the 20th arrondissement, so a pretty small subset. The experiment seems, however, to have gone no farther, and the videotech never entered, entered Parisian homes en masse. Uh, film critic and journalist Jean-Michel Frodon has blamed its, its inability to break out of Léal, where, where it was situated, on both, quote, the pitiful state of the Parisian cable network and also on the problem of negotiating rights to distribute thousands of documents for free. So the project to bring Parisian history and images to every home thus became a casualty of the great inefficiency of Le Plan Cab, which French media and communications scholar Jean-Claude Sergent has called, quote, one of the resounding industrial failures of the 1980s. 
The video tech also must have fallen victim to technical difficulties within the problem. And so there's another kind of similar project in Biarritz that's going to pipe on-demand video into French homes that itself also never functions. And so the French actually will go straight from, for the most part, will go straight from cable to uh, digital television or to satellite. So there's, uh, sorry, from, they'll go from analog, skipping cable to digital or to satellite. So there's never a real uh, cable moment in France like there is in the States. So if the project had succeeded, the videotech would have pumped images of the past through a circular, circulatory system of tuyaux, or pipes, as contemporaries called them. It would have given Parisians almost seamless access to a century of images, allowing them to mix and build their own historical narratives in the privacy of their own homes. And it would have placed the Parisian past at the confluence of the decade's most ambitious technological developments at the heart of this kind of networked infrastructure of France in the 1980s, evident in everything from the TGV and the Minitel to the evolution of the language itself. After all, the use of the word penché, or plugged in, uh, was, is synonym for, sorry, it's a kind of a quintessential word from the 1980s, and it means, it means fashionable, right? It means hip. Uh, and the video tech, above all, as a contemporary observed, was a space that wanted itself to be fashionable, to be branché, so plugged in, in these multiple senses of the word. Okay, so what does this have to do with history and memory? So if the video tech was supposed to be plugged into the latest trends in technology, it was also, as it developed, really functioning at the confluence of the most up-to-date debates about history, about memory, and in particular about audiovisual technologies' uh, future role in, in teaching and learning and preserving the past. So the videotech's organizers would not settle for produ producing not just any library or archive. They also wished it to be a veritable center to explore and define the role of the audiovisual. So this is another buzzword of the 1980s. That, and it, it, which encompassed radio, television, cinema, video. Uh, and so it's, the, the video tech is supposed to be kind of leading this charge of the audiovisual at the moment and also in the future. A 1984 profile in Le Monde, which is published shortly after the video tech moved into the Forum des Halles, explained its pivotal role between the past and the future. Quote, the video tech's role is to be the memory and the consciousness the history and the future of consciousness, the history and the future of the city, right? So it's got to be everything. It's got to be past, present, future, uh, but not just history, but also consciousness, whatever that means, um, and memory. So the institution, with its insistence on memory rather than history, and the importance of the audiovisual, really crystallized this period's investment in and scholarly inquiry into the possibilities of the recorded past. So the videotech's mobilization of these latest technologies uh, to build and strengthen the city's collective memory situates it at the nexus of emerging French discourses about the differences between memory and history. Promotional materials use the term, quote, living memory instead of history when talking about the archives. Uh, and the videotech would not, so it would not teach Parisians about the past, but rather help them develop this personal relationship. Its goals emerged alongside academic interest in the subject of history and memory. So historian Pierre Nora, who's best known for sort of pioneering research into the difference between history and memory, uh, opened his seminar on this subject at the École des Hautes Études en Sciences Sociales in 1979, which is the same year that the videotech is first conceived of. The seven volumes of Nora's Les Lieux de Mémoire, which are usually translated as Realms of Memory, uh, which included over 120 essays exploring the physical and abstract sites of cultural memory in France, were published between 1981 and 1992, so really in the same decade as the videotech. And several other key French studies in the history of memory will appear as well in the 1980s and early 1990s. 
Uh, and this is still, for those of you who are not historians, like this work is still really important in history and it still is driving a lot of research. I was just at a conference and every other paper was started with Pierre Nora and the difference between history and memory. So still quite relevant, but not often not situated in its moment. So what's interesting here is that participants in Nora's project who really do read like a who's who in French history at the time, they're using primarily textual archives. They're not really thinking about the image and they're not thinking about the visual for creating memory. And yet the videotech, which emerges at the exact same time and is dealing with the exact same kind of ideas and distinctions, is very much invested in kind of bringing this project, this idea of the difference between history and memory, into the modern era by relying on all of these different technologies and by using images. And also popular culture. I think that's important. The, the Pierre Nora project is very much academic, uh, and, and the videotech will have you know, commercials for mushrooms or for um, household sponges. So it's a, a different level of, of thinking about cultural memory. So its success as an institution of memory, not history, rested on the videotech's ability to share as much of its collections as possible with a wide and varied public. So its organizers were constantly combating fears, especially from city officials who were reluctant about funding this project, that its collections might become, quote, fixed memory, sort of frozen in place from disuse. So they designed everything within the database, for example, uh, in order to return the most possible results. So instead of having people watch the same three videos of the Eiffel Tower over and over again, they wanted you to be able to get as many different possibilities um, for learning and for dredging up this information whenever you searched for something. The idea of connecting the videotech to the wider world via cable is also involved in this idea of reaching as many people as possible. Organizers were really conscious of the fact that you couldn't necessarily expect working people to go to the videotech during working hours, and so you needed to bring the videotech to them. So if you wanted to have a kind of upper echelon of society who could access this resource, it needed to be at home. Uh, and there's also a kind of iterative, iterative manner that's similar to memory in the way that people are accessing the resources. So the videotech is very insistent on the fact that people can reorder documents, which um, is the kind of... Uh, number one rule of working in archives, you can't reorder documents. So it's a kind of turning archives on their heads. Uh, so it's intricately caught up, this kind of success as an institution of memory is intricately caught up in this pr promised revolution of the audiovisual, um, which is another subject of scholarly and public investigations in the 1980s and 1990s. Paul Virilio, for example, who begins his career as an urbanist, began discussing the effects of television, video, and computers early in the decade. The emergence of cable TV, especially CNN and the VCR, pushed him to theorize the reduction of three-dimensional space to the two-dimensional image on the screen. Writing about these same technologies in the early 1990s, former state bureaucrat and emerging media scholar Régis Debray would posit the evolution of a new era in civilization, the videosphere, which uh, he dated from the beginning of color television which followed the logosphere and the graphosphere. But, but this discussion extended well beyond the bounds of intellectual and academic circles. So I want to tell you about two big exhibitions that kind of interact with this idea and I think have an impact on how the, the video tech will uh, come into formation. So the first is held at the Musée National des Techniques du Conservatoire National des Arts et Métiers. So the kind of museum of the Institute of... Um, trade and craft, which is also a museum of technology uh, in Paris. So in 1985, they hold an exhibition called Interferences, Two Centuries of Long-Distance Communication, which is about the history of these technologies and their effects on military, industry, and private spaces. 
So one reviewer noted, echoing Virilio's ideas, that television and radio changed time itself. They, quote, speed up knowledge of the new and therefore time, the very rhythm of history. A more ambitious exhibition was held at the Bibliothèque Publique de l'Information at the Centre Georges Pompidou. So um, some of you may know the Contemporary Art Museum that's there, but also that building also houses a really important library, uh, which was involved in debates about what the library of the future should look like. Uh, and so this exhibition was organized by audiovisual expert and philosopher Bernard Stigler, uh, Stigler, who proposed the existence of a new era of civilization, the, quote, age of light. So you have a lot of people talking about how the audiovisual is changing civilization itself. And he argued that during the era of light, quote, the recording and circulation of news and information is approaching the speed of light, that is to say, near instantaneity. And the exhibition presented visitors with a kind of historical narrative of information acquisition from the Lascaux Caves through the dawn of written text into the invention of mechanical print up until the present. Uh, and it argued that readers were becoming consumers of information that dependent on machines and the technocrats who knew how to use them, and that the very fabric of society, again, was being called into question by this consumerism of memory. So the Beaubois exhibition proposed to turn consumers into uh, users and teaching them how to manipulate these new technologies. So the ideal library of the future, it proposed, would be capable of combating the saturation of information. Uh, so this is a brochure from, from this exhibition, which is also sometimes referred to as the bibliotheca, uh, the library of the future, as you'll see here. Um, so the exhibition's premise is that if you can teach people how to use audiovisual materials, uh, then they'll learn how to develop their own narratives out of them and won't just consume the narratives that are given to them. So speaking at a conference organized as part of this exhibition, Pierre Nora explained this paradox. He uh, explained that caught up in the drive to collect and even produce documentation, even through the new practice of oral history, historians had risked neglecting their duty to interpret the archive. And so the public could only be in the same boat, right? Uh, so, the, so the library of the future would teach these people to be users, adept at manipulating, remixing, and understanding information circulated via the new technologies of memory. So it included three hands-on workshops. Uh, this is images from one. So involved different machines, computers, scanners, sound recorders, as well as uh, software programs, video editors, a digital writing program, and translators, as well as a host of raw materials. Uh, I don't have pictures of the raw materials, but this is another of the machine setups. Uh, and the raw materials are particularly impressive. They it contained 20 years of the evening news, which was donated by the French television archive, Lina, uh, 20 years of photos from Agence France Presse, so the press agency, scenes from fictional films, digitized novels, and newspapers, so a wealth of information. And users were supposed to, visitors were supposed to come in, learn how to use the machines, manipulate stuff with them, come back to another training session, and then come back and do another training session in the last workshop. And I've seen in the archives people complaining that this doesn't exactly work, but this is the idea of how, um, of how you're going to train new library users. So the exhibition itself would travel, but ultimately uh, the, the vision it had for the library of the future does not really come into play. Although if you've been to this library in the Centre Pompidou, this is what it often looks like with people watching and consuming news from all over the world uh, in the library itself. So the videotech re represented a long-term municipal response to the same threat that people are picking up on all across French society of this oversaturation and ultimate disappearance of memory. 
So whether or not Paris was losing its memory had figured among the questions discussed at the project's outset. And I think this is a particularly hard thing to prove. Like, how would you prove that Paris is losing its memory or not? But it doesn't matter. People are talking about it. So I think we can take it seriously. Um, so the Videotech would, in a sense, function as a permanent workshop of this sort, where people could go and learn about how these technologies worked. Uh, and yet, there was a kind of problem inherent in the Videotech's approach, which, which was that it was buying commercial media. It was acquiring commercial media to teach people about their past. And so the staff is particularly worried about whether or not it should trust this kind of quote-unquote industrial memory to borrow from Stiegler. Um, so a large portion of the Videotech's budget each year will go into funding its own productions. These projects would ensure the documentation of kind of out-of-the-way neighborhoods or construction projects, but it would also ensure that the collections contained not just the products of commercial media culture. So Jean-Michel Fredon had explained in a 1991 article about the Videotech that the problem with the era in the 80s of the quote-unquote image is that the images were kind of less and less fit to constitute visual memory. And this is the premise of the photo contest that I work on as well, that even though people are taking more and more photographs, they're not taking the right types of photographs. So you need to focus people to produce the proper types of visual materials that can actually function as historical documents. So by 1995, oh, and they're particularly worried about the fact that contemporary media is so fast, that the cutting is really fast, the pace is really fast, and that you'll need longer and more sustained images in order to be able to uh, study the past and the future. By 1995, these productions represent 10% of the 5,500 documents at the Videotech. Uh, and starting in 1989, the Videotech would also welcome, invite Parisians to donate their own amateur videos uh, and photographs to the institution, so that that would also, these kind of individual memories would form part of the institution's collective archive. So the Videotech itself found itself at the paradoxical position of attempting to construct the collective memory of the city with materials culled from an increasing flood of fast images that at times seemed like symptoms of the very speeding up of time itself. And while the institution juggled this as best it could, carefully selecting documents for addition to the archive and producing it its own, it also sought to understand the very nature of the audiovisual and the image. And so to this end, the Videotech will attempt to become a real player on the audiovisual scene. They'll host conferences. Uh, they will have a, a kind of hub of technical information that people can come in and consult. Um, one of the first conferences it holds is actually about the role of film and television in historical inquiry, and they'll invite a panel of well-known historians at the time who all come in and essentially say that video and television is not useful for history, and so you know we don't need to be involved in your institution, um, which I think they're wrong about, obviously. Uh, but they'll also uh, sort of fund artist projects. So uh, Karen O'Rourke, who's an, an American but lives in Paris, she does a project called um, Paris Réseau, so Paris Networks, which will map participants' trajectories from the videotech out to the city. They'll host film festivals, contests, and exhibitions. So it, it didn't just kind of emerge at the confluence of audiovisual and memory, but it sought to become this kind of leading voice in these discourses. So to conclude, I'd like to reflect a little bit on how the videotech failed and why, and to maybe extrapolate that into contemporary debates about digital history and digital history projects and the, the, uh, our own era's technological constraints and possibilities. So it never made good on this ambition. The Videotech never made good on this ambition to plug into these networks um, uh, and bring its offerings to a wider audience. In part, this is because the cable network never really launches, as I said. Um, but also because the institution will quickly turn away from being this focus of city memory. So it, within 10 years, the Videotech is worried that actually Parisians aren't that interested 
in learning about Parisian history anymore, and that you can't just have an institution of Parisian history. So the institution will change its name. Uh, it becomes the Forum, the Forum des Images, so the Forum of Images, uh, and it becomes a place. It's updated again. So that's, this is the first update in 98. It's updated again in 2008. It reopens. Uh, and so people are more likely to go to the Forum des Images now to watch maybe a festival of cell phone cinema or a David Lynch all night uh, marathon rather than going for the Parisian history collections. Um, and yet it kind of like it was constantly on the verge of succeeding, right? Throughout the 1990s, everything that's written about the videotech is about how in a year it's going to be up and running. Uh, in 1995, it makes the news because it's one of the first places that has public free internet posts that you can use called the Cyberport. Uh, in the late 1990s, media scholar uh, Denis Maréchal will promise that the internet will soon play a bigger role at the institution because the collections are going to be able online, be available online imminently. So you can imagine that if this institution that couldn't really launch on cable because of problem of rights is suddenly going to launch its all of its collections on the internet, which have now you know expanded several fold. Obviously, this didn't happen, right? You can search the catalog online, but that's it. So the videotech also sort of constantly negotiated a contradiction between these utopian ideas and also the real, um, some real pessimism about what technology meant. So there's a, a letter in the archives of the videotech from Marcel Bonneau, who was head of stage programming at the Centre Pompidou, who wrote to the director of Parisian Cultural Affairs in the early 1980s, in 1981, and he's worried about the videotech. He worries that the contemporary thought ascribed too much power to video that it presented, quote, a miracle practice capable of resolving all problems of communication. And that this, he said this was a naive vision, because what does technology do but it sits us alone in front of a bunch of winking machines and it doesn't create community, it doesn't create collective memory, and it's going to be a waste of money. Um, so you have continually these detractors, and I think the... I think the Forum des Images is a response to this, right? So instead of being a solitary institution, you have a forum, you have a place of exchange, and where media will be something that is consumed socially and not individually. Um, and so the videotech would sacrifice its identity as the pioneering institution of memory to become an institution of community building. So a sort of precursor to the idea of social media, right? Kind of media consumed socially. So even though the videotech does not exist today in the form that its organizers would have hoped, I think there are kind of important promises here for, for our own moment uh, of, digital, of technological change of the digital. So its initial mission eventually failed because of four elements that I'm not sure we've resolved in contemporary digital history projects. And I just want to give these to you as a kind of maybe a possible jumping off point for a Q&A or just um, something to consume later over the post-Q&A. Um, the videotech's vision, so the first one, the, the vision for the videotech relied on the spread of technologies that were ultimately not under its control, right? The videotech can't control the fact that the city uh, never implements the cable network and that people don't subscribe to cable. So that's one problem, right? The problem of digital history projects that may be tied to a single platform. You can't force that on people. The obvious problem of obsolescence. So the videotech collected documents on film, then they transferred them to videotape, which in the 1990s were deteriorating rapidly. Um, then they closed for four years in the mid-2000s, so from 2004 to 2008, to digitize all of these documents. Um, 
which has been incredibly costly. And I think they're lucky that these are kind of straight images, if you will. So they didn't need, they're not interactive images as much as the video talk, tech talks about interactivity. These are images that you press play and they play. Uh, and so they did translate from one platform to another. And that the internet could take over the functionality of the Minitel, which allowed uh, people to search the catalog from far away. Um, the third problem that the video tech brings up is a problem of rights. So not everything can be made freely available to audiences free of charge, and it definitely couldn't be distributed. And, and as we work, I, for example, work mostly on the 20th century, and almost nothing in French history in the 20th century is online. We talk about the digital revolution and all of you know, historical documents being available on the internet, and they're just not. And the 20th century documents are not going to be available on the internet for a long time because they have rights holders, and rights holders demand money, and they don't want things freely accessible. Um, so I think that's a problem of how what kind of periods and moments are we limited to in thinking about implementing the digital. And there's also a problem, and my last problem, is a problem of novelty. So 10 years after its opening, it's seen that Parisians who are kind of so well known for their navel gazing didn't want to come and watch films about Parisian history anymore. Um, they just couldn't bear to watch another film series about the boulevards, the Eiffel Tower, or the revolution. And I think that begs the question of how do you prevent historical projects from being not just being novelties that people may consult a handful of times or be forced to look at through in the context of a course, but how do you actually make them kind of cultural institutions that people will go to back, go consult again and again in the way that people will go to museums again and again. Um, so I don't think that the video tech provides good answers to these things, but it definitely raises the questions and, and perhaps this will be a, a platform for discussion. So thank you. I don't, but yeah. One thing I'd like to say is uh, please introduce yourself uh, when you ask the question. Yeah. Not everybody knows everybody, uh, but it's a nice chance for some community building here as well. So with that, yeah. let's open the live question. Let's open the floor first. Hello, I'm Lauren Jacobi, and I'm an assistant professor in the um, history theory and criticism programs at the Department of Architecture. And so, Kevin, thank you for a wonderful um, I wanted to ask you a bit about, if you could speak a bit about uh, the organizers uh, mm -hmm. more fully mm -hmm. in that, you know, one of the ways that we could read this is that that's a pro it's a project that really um, can collude with the destruction of the city that's going on. And so I think that you, you, know, you touched on this, but um, in what ways were anxieties about that? Because that once you have the image archive, right, mm -hmm. that doesn't need, that can be a substitute for the world that constructed city, right? Yeah. So how were anxieties about that manifest? Yeah. So what's interesting about the, the kind of history of the organization, which I didn't touch on, is that the person who suggests this is Pierre Emmanuel, who's a poet. Uh, and poet is kind of familiar with Baudelaire, right? Like kind of city changes faster than the heart of the mortal. And we'll quote that incessantly as the reason why he's interested in this project. But it turns out if you look at the archives that Pierre Emmanuel is re really concerned about his retirement. And so he needs a project that will get him the highest salary so he can keep his retirement numbers up. So I'm not entirely sure who came up with this, but I think it's Jacques Chirac, actually, who was mayor at the time, and this is his pet project. And Emmanuel will get on board with it because, as he writes insistently and over and over and over again to anyone who will receive a letter from him, he needs to retire at the highest possible status of a, a municipal bureaucrat, which is quite high at that moment. Um, and so I think... I think yes, I think you can kind of retrospectively read 
it is possible to, to destroy once you have the images, and you see that in the history of 19th century Paris. Um, but I think that there's something a little bit more, a little bit more and a little bit less corrupt that's going on in the organization initially of, of the project. Yeah, but it's a great question. I think. Yeah, Carrie. Do you want to introduce yourself? Oh, yes. Yeah, sorry. Um, I'm Carrie O'Connor. I'm uh, <laughs> teaching French. Um, so, I guess thinking about the, I guess, creators or organizers mm-hmm. of the project, it, I mean, it reminds me of what we're doing here, comparative media studies. And is that something that was thought of during the time? Did mm-hmm. you have historians and, you know, librarians and people in the technology sector coming together with this idea? Or mm-hmm. how was this kind of born? Because it seems like it's coming from a lot of different directions. And yeah. Um, so the kind of so Emmanuel before being this kind of impoverished bureaucrat is the head of the INA, so the Institut National de l'Audiovisuel, so the National Institute of Audiovisual in France. So that and that is the archive that will take over from the kind of archive department of the ORTF, so the Office de Radio Télévision Française. Uh, and so he's coming out of an audiovisual archive. Uh, an archive that's newly formed and whose goal is to archive French television and keep all of the kind of paper records for that as well. So I think he's coming out of a familiarity with a setting in which people are concerned about media and how to archive media and what media will allow us to do. Um, that said, there aren't initial consultants on this project who are historians, at least not that I've found in the, in the archives. Um, so it really comes out of kind of people who are working in an institutional setting, but not necessarily, they're not necessarily calling in theorists until after things are already opened, and then they'll be bringing historians in uh, for conferences and whatnot. Um, so there's a confluence, but it's not necessarily, it's not necessarily always of people who know each other and are necessarily working on the same project. Yeah. That's great. Um, so they wanted you to be able to search the catalog via Minitel and then plug in through cable, so like a kind of interface with a menu, plug in like the number of the document that you wanted, charge it to your account, and then have it streamed to you. And it, you would have to kind of wait in a queue for it to stream, because they couldn't, weren't thinking they could necessarily stream everything at once. Um, so you would have signed up for, you know, like 9 p.m. tonight, I want to stream whatever, and, and it, it will get charged to my account. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Yeah, Sasha, do you want to introduce yourself? I'm a junior, and I'm um, actually going to mention Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's a great question because the first thing they do is they hook it up to a school, right? They hook it up to the Lycée Turgot, uh, uh, 
And so, yes, obviously they did get around that issue for just the school. Um, as far as I know, they've never offered it to other institutions. Like, it's not a subscription package that, you know, MIT could buy for our library um, and then have access to. But that's not a bad idea. You should maybe tell them that they should do that. <laughs> um, yeah. I think the problem is a lot of times they're buying, they're buying individual, so they acquired the rights to individual documents and then to go back and retroactively get those rights when you're talking about a document by document basis, I think they're just overwhelmed at the prospect of doing that. Yeah. So yeah. Sandy. Sandy Alexander, Literature Faculty. So my question is about um, community building. Mm-hmm. Right? Because yeah. the story that you tell, it seems like community building becomes an, a sort of undesirable outcome of the desire for history and memory, mm-hmm. right? So we have history, we have memory, and then at the end of the story, we get community building, right? Right. Sort of right. Which is like <laughs> the demise of history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, so that's the yeah. question I have. Like, what yeah. is the relationship between community building and mm-hmm. History, mm-hmm. right? Is that an unraveling of uh, this quest for history um, yeah. via images, or I mean, what is it doing to yeah. the quest? Yeah, that's a great question because really, the way you just described my narrative is, it seems kind of crazy, right? Like the kind of end result is this terrible thing. Like people will get together and watch images together and, and, and form community. But I think the the kind of memory the the polemic around memory in the 1980s is so much about history having been consumed collectively, that you learn history in a classroom setting, that you consume it in books that are, that are written for these kind of multiple audiences, that you get it in museum exhibitions, that you never get history on a kind of personalized basis. So it's never a personalized narrative. It's never something that you're discovering on your own. And so while it seems contradictory, right, that the kind of demise, the failure of this institution results in a kind of creation of maybe an audiovisual community, uh, in the 80s, it makes a lot of sense that it is the first time that you can consume the first time. I mean, you could always go to libraries, right? But it's the kind of, quote unquote, the first time that you could consume these documents at your own pace, at your own rhythm, and have not just books, but like a direct access to the past through images. Um, and so I think you have to put yourself in that, in that position of remembering what history education looked like up until that time to, for that for that kind of odd narrative twist to make sense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But that's a great question. That's great. Yeah. I'm angry also to say. I was wondering, you mentioned that there's this idea that people be able to build their own memories. Mm-hmm. I guess how that works on two levels. One, I'm curious if you talk about the kind of like searching texting that they do in these videos, whether it works at all from like how we was it actually happening yeah 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 um, so from all accounts of the the indexing system at the time it is really revolutionary so the way things would have been indexed before the video tech, you're indexing books on based on content, based on subject, but you're not going to go through each chapter of the book and say what's happening in the chapter. And that's what they're doing for these audiovisual documents. So there's a kind of detail of indexing that is revolutionary. 
the people that at the video tech, the people who work at the video tech are indexing these documents. So it's their own it's their own index, it's their own database that they're building from scratch. So they're not taking someone else's um, you know, kind of uh, information and inputting it. They're they're watching everything and indexing it according to kind of very um, very strict categories of what they're looking for. Um, so it does seem, and it appears descriptions of this database appear in a lot of library journals, kind of library and archiving journals that people in other institutions are, would have been reading. So there's a kind of novelty within the professional community itself. Um, and then, so initially, no, to answer to your second question, when the users first went in, there would have been no way to track what they were doing, and they would have had no way to track it. But they... Uh, institute like within the first year a process by which you'll log in and you have your account and you can look at a record of what you've looked at before and you can save things that you may not have gotten to got to watch that you can come back to um, so and the you, the kind of institution itself would have had access to those records so they can see what people are doing and what types of films they want to be watching or what types of images and they'll do again it's this kind of great moment of people interested in data collection about humans and so they will uh, be calibrating, like, what do men between 19 and 25 want to be watching, and is it different from these other users? And that's their big user group, is men between the ages of 19 and 25. Um, yeah. This is just a quick follow-up for that. Yeah. Video uh, indexing, was it unique because it was, like, time-based annotation? Or, like, they were doing... Um, what did you say, Patsy? Yeah. Okay, so it was about video, but not that they were... It's the, yeah beyond what you would normally, yeah, yeah. And they built their own system, right? They're not just taking software from someone else; they're building their own. Yeah, that's great. Um, I don't know in the front, and then Julie, and then we'll go. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm a visiting scholar at CMS uh, from the University of Zurich, and I have a little question: If there is any connection to the Cinematheque, I'm always thinking mm -hmm. because there are this, it's an yeah. awesome institution. Yep. And it's a successful institution mm -hmm. that survived all yep. the um, changes um, in yeah, media changes. Mm -hmm. And I just I, I just wonder if they were rivals at the time because yeah. actually I was always thinking about the cinematech and then just after three minutes I realized oh no it's the video video tech yeah yeah yeah, yeah, so, yeah and I wonder what what probably this goes too far but why or how the connection was mm -hmm. during this time yeah and yeah. Really it's a great question. So the Cinematheque, for those of you who are not intimately, intimately familiar with all these techs in Paris, so the Cinematheque opens in 1925, is that right? Uh, and it's created, it's a project that's proposed for a long time before it opens. It's proposed for decades, and it's initially proposed by one person who's not the person who actually finally gets the funding for it. But the person who first proposes the Cinematheque wants it to be an archive of Parisian history. Like, that's the point of the Cinematheque, and it, that's why it will be funded by the city of Paris, is because there are all of these old films, no one preserves them, they're dangerous to have around because they're on nitrate, and so they're highly flammable, uh, but we should figure out how to stock them and how to stock them safely because we're losing an archive of the city history that's going to disappear. By the time it opens, it's not an archive of Parisian history, it's a kind of educational center using film and kind of loaning films out to classrooms around the city. Um, and so... By the 80s, they feel like they have a very different institutional identity. And in fact, the Cinematheque almost never comes up in anything written about the Videotheque at the time. It seems like they're, not, they're almost like two different, entirely different things. Yeah. That's a great question. Yeah. Julie. Hi, I'm Julie. I'm a 
Yeah, 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 absolutely. So the Videotech opens in the Forum des Images, which is the shopping mall that replaces the central markets in Paris. So Paris had markets for over a thousand years in the exact same spots, and in 1969 they'll be moved out into the suburbs and replaced with a shopping mall, which people are very upset about. Uh, so the ventre de Paris, the stomach of Paris, will be replaced with the heart of Paris, as they called the shopping mall, but this is not a good replacement. Um, and if you've been in Paris recently, they're destroying the shopping mall and, and rebuilding it. So again, another project that's being, again, reconstructed. Um, so I think there are a whole host of uh, kind of ways of consuming history that open in this mall when it first opens. So the videotech is one of them, a kind of like consumer approach to history where you can go in and watch whatever you want. Uh, but there will also be uh, an offshoot of the Musée Grévin before, so the wax museum in Paris will open in the shopping mall. So before the shops are all there, you can go in and see a bunch of life-size tableaux of 19th century France. Um, and there's one other thing. Oh, there's a kind of, there's an exhibition of, of paintings, impressionist paintings that will reconstruct Parisian boulevards and cafes. So you have a mock kind of ersatz boulevard culture being reproduced in the shopping mall. So absolutely, it's this kind of play with notions of shopping and consumption. And I think the kind of bigger argument that I make in the article that has to do with this is that we think of Paris in those years being consumed as an image, and that actually what my research shows is that it's not just consumed as an image, but it, it is consumed in images. Like the main way that people consume the city is, is at things like the videotech, uh, where they're watching images of the city rather than walking around and thinking it looks like an image. Yeah, thanks, Julie. Okay, I'm going to drink water and, and I'll we'll wait for another hand. <laughs> yeah. So I was really struck by the idea that uh, Paris is losing its history. Yeah. Uh, and it, it got me wondering, I mean, I guess when I think of Japanese history, it's almost the opposite, where they're trying to lose some of their history. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so I, I was wondering when are... When is that idea invoked, and kind of who's invoking it? I mean, I, I wonder who, to whom does it help to have what history yeah. retained? I, I'm just trying to get the politics of that, or yeah. the cultural politics of that, because yeah. it, it is such an interesting idea that, oh my, if we lose this history, but then I'm thinking, well, then what happens? Right, yeah. So it's evoked at different moments by people across the political spectrum. I think in this moment, it's a it's a right wing push, and it's a push against it's a push against people on the left who are saying like we're losing our history. You're destroying our buildings. Like you're actually destroying the city. And and these this is a push from the right to say oh we're losing history. But if we kind of do it in images instead, it will be you know that'll be fine. But there are moments throughout the century where the people who are collecting photos are people on the left. So it kind of, I think that often the relationship is that whatever regime is in power, uh, wait, does that work? Yeah, the regimes that are in power are usually the ones who are instituting these collections of images, in part because they can, because they have the money to do it. But it, like, so after the, um, during the liberation and the Second World War, the people who are collecting images are members of the resistance. So you absolutely cannot you know, accuse them of being on the right, but they're worried that the kind of left-wing history of resistance during the war is going to be lost. So that's why they're collecting images. So I think it kind of, 
it floats across the political spectrum, but it depends mainly on who's in power and who has the power to, you know, collect images as a way of staving this off. Although the complaint will be wider than that. I don't know if that was the most confused answer I've ever given to a, a question, but it's getting there. Yeah. France of people claiming the history, claiming the, the need for keeping the history, mm-hmm. and it and it gets battered both ways, right and left and center. Yeah, going back centuries. Everyone does it. And is it is it safe to say then because it supports the legitimacy of something, right? I mean, I guess that's the idea of retaining your history. I mean, it's not for memory's sake, right? Or it's not... Well, no, there is, but... It's Frenchies. It is legitimacy. I think it's that. But I think it also is that there's a kind of cultural value, a kind of global sense of cultural value that does exist throughout French culture that maybe doesn't... Maybe doesn't? Yeah, I'm I'm being too extreme with Japan. I mean, of course, they have all this history fetishism that goes on as well. Right. Mostly tourist attractions now, I would say. Or at least that's one of the ways it expresses itself. It's really embedded in the French educational system. The factory one is really French. Sounds good. Thanks, Patsy. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah. So, hello, thank you Hi. for your uh, wonderful presentation. You speak Thanks. very fast. <laughs> oh, sorry. I would love to say, so it was a lot of, uh, but it was very yeah. interesting. Um, Could you introduce yourself? Yeah. Sorry, I'm yeah. Nara Valetti and I'm yeah. a, a fellow at uh, Open Documentary Lab. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm doing a project on archiving, so that's okay. Yeah. Um, uh, I wanted to just be talking about culture, French culture, and, and uh, the embedded sort of desire for keeping history. There was an interesting presentation a couple of weeks ago uh, at Harvard mm-hmm. with, um, that was putting in relationship. Uh, the film of Alain René, yeah. uh, Toutes Mort du Monde, yeah. with uh, Cold Storage, which is Harvard's And you should probably speak louder and a little to this direction, too, so people can hear you. Okay, so mm-hmm. this was just a parenthesis, but my question was to go back to what you said before we started, um, uh, and I'm curious, to, since we started talking about Paris, uh-huh. is what is your project on the cliché of Paris? Yeah. Sure, yeah, so the cliché is the book project, and, and it's Paris and the cliché of history for a number of reasons. A, I think talking about Parisian history is relatively clichéd, uh, and, and kind of, you know, history is so embedded in, in French culture and in Parisian culture that why do we need another book on Parisian history? So my title is both a kind of uh, wink to that, but cliché also, the book is about photography, and it's also about other types of images and how photography is kind of constantly being read in intermedial perspective. And so cliché in French also means a printing plate, uh, and so it has embedded in the, in, the, in the title this idea that photography is interacting with prints. And cliché is also any type of photograph. So in French, it's anything. It's, it's anything photographic is a cliché. So I, I'm thinking, I read... In the book, I read kind of photographs, prints, and the historical imagination. So kind of what sorts of images do people have in their heads of Paris uh, through a kind of history of collecting, of the use of photographs and other types of images in illustrated books, in amateur photo contests, uh, and then kind of ending with the videotech as a kind of coda to this history. Um, yeah, that's the, that's the cliche. That's the kind of bigger, bigger project. Yeah, and it starts with, take it back to Lauren's question, who's no longer here, I and mean, it starts with the idea that the first 
photo archives in France would be motivated by houseminization, by the destruction of the city in the 19th century, that you would think you needed to collect the city's history at all as an antidote to the like really right-wing renovation of the city. Um, to get back to Ian's point as well. Yeah. Thanks. Liam. Uh, curious if you could talk a little bit about how you see uh, more recent film archives possibly as uh, that are started on the web in particular and how they might be a little different from, uh, obviously they might not have as much of a national scope, but uh, how are they sort of operating differently or uh, using messaging differently, something like the anthology film archives? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that there are there are differences and similarities. There are obviously differences of access, right? And kind of anything that's on the web is much more accessible than this kind of Parisian institute institution where you still have to sign up to use your uh, viewing carol. Um, but I also think there are differences of cataloging that kind of create. The nice thing about the Videotext collection, and it's not a great place to be a researcher, it's not really set up to be a researcher, um, but there's a, there's, a, um, there's a continuity of cataloging that I think you don't always get with internet projects, especially with like the internet archive, it's incredibly hard to find things in that archive unless you know exactly what you're looking for. And so I think in this project there's a sort of um, encounter, right? there's a kind of possibility of discovering things you didn't know about that's perhaps greater than some of the online archives. Um, but I think they're coming out of the same type of, mm, I mean, the same type of uh, desire for immediate access, right? That immediate access to the past will be a different type of encounter with the past than other things. Yeah. Uh, and those are my three thoughts. I may have more, but that's the start. Thanks. Just a silly question. Yeah. Yeah, it's still in Leal. It's the same place, and that was one of the problems of the recent renovation of Leal is that they can't, they couldn't tear out the interior of the forum in part because they just, the city had just spent all this money to renovate the Forum des Images. Um, so yeah, so it's still there. Yeah, uh, and this is what it's still, this is what it looks like. Okay. Yeah. That's a great question, um, and there's actually there's um, Michel Gondry did a, a, a commercial for the Forum des Images, which is really about the Forum des Images being placed in the hole of that was the Halle and is now a shopping mall uh, that I couldn't work into this. Uh, but so that when the Forum des Images, uh, the Forum des Halles is initially planned, the videotech is not part of it, uh, but there's a big media tech that's supposed to be there, um, and so that will be taken over in part by the video tech. And then, is it not, is that library also not specialized in film? Because you can borrow film books there, can't you? 
Yeah? Yeah. So I think that it was, it's a media tech rather than just uh, a kind of sonotech or whatever you would have. But yeah, so it's deeply embedded in this moment of creating media techs and then thinking about making these different types of resources available. Yeah. But it will end up being much smaller because the video takes, video tech takes over a lot of that space. A few more minutes. I, I'd like to pick up on the, uh, the the idea you were sort of ending with about the kind of lessons we could draw from a failed institution yeah. about the ways media and technology intersect. And, yeah. And and, maybe, and I'm sure people have other experiences with other kinds of media that they're thinking about. I mean, I, I was struck. So it, it, I, the things I got down were uh, video tech had trouble because it depended on a technology it couldn't control, uh -huh. the Minitel, I suppose, is part of that. And cable. And cable. Yeah. Uh, so that's interesting. Obsolescence being an issue, which I think is kind of striking because it's true that film, in a way, seems obsolete, but it kind of lasts longer yeah. <laughs> than videotape yeah. and yeah. the way cassette tapes and eight-track tapes uh, and even a scratched CD is way worse than vinyl. Right? Yeah. And so the vinyl sticks around for music. Um, and I was, I was struck by this, you know, that, that how do you make it, so those are sort of two technological pieces, but then how do you make an institution or, uh, what is it, a, a media technology, yeah. a media practice become a habit of some sort, or yeah. become sort of part of your uh, uh, yearly thing, your monthly thing you do, and, and that's where it got, to me, it got back to that community question, mm -hmm. uh, or that not necessarily that you have to do it in a community, but that there's some enough importance to it that doing it appeals to other people in your circle that then you care about. I mean, it just, it was right. this very provocative kind of way of, of, of showing some of the broader uh, implications, it seems to me. And, and I don't know, I mean, do you see other examples of other things you're like, oh man, that's... That's just like a video tech, or or this is you know if video tech had just had this, then it would have been. And yeah. you know, I guess photography is interesting too. I mean, photographs last quite a long time. Yeah. But the ones I put on my print, my digital printer, they don't last as long. Mm -hmm. um, and so there really is this. There's some kind of interesting dynamic there, and even with the digital, where the idea was that it's just digital, so it'll always be there. But that's that's not. not yeah, that doesn't really work. Yeah. Right? And maybe. Yeah. Even, quicker as the Library of Congress yeah. is trying to yeah. deal with archiving all this digital material. Where's the glass disc and this player and that player? Yeah. Whereas the paper print archive of early film at the Library of Congress is actually like Fine. really, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I can, I can take a stab at answering that. I don't know if anyone wants to, if we want to have like a larger discussion, yeah, if people, people want to jump in. in. Yeah, do you make people think of something? Yeah, you haven't had yeah. a chance well, to I, You know, I think, uh, I'm Jonathan Williams, I'm a consultant, I do video publishing. Technology and you know I kind of started my practice at a time when uh, video was transitioning from analog waveforms to digital signals, but still on tape. Mm -hmm. And the tape part of video practice, I think, is, is really interesting because yeah. that obsolescence, you know, tape is opaque. You know, you pick up a cellular, you can see what's on it. You right. pick up a VHS, you can't see it. Can't yeah. So it's very unique in that way. And video is still. Video used to be the thing that was on tape. 
That's how you distinguished it. That's how you knew. Now we're in this world where it's the same camera. It's still video versus film, right? There's two different things. But it's the exact same technology. It's the exact same distribution <coughs> method. It's mm -hmm. the same bits. Yep. So I think the history of the video has this beautiful kind of 30-year window where this tape thing happened, and it's gone forever and will never come back. Yeah. But we have, we're not far enough away from it that we understand that that's what videotape was. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think we're, it's, uh, it's fascinating, it, it, video has this real presence to it, it's got this physicality to it. Video noise, you know when something was recorded on a VCR. Yeah. All of us still know that, and that's what's going away. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think that kind of disappearance, it's, it's like a city disappearing under the waves. I think it's a yeah. really interesting kind of presence. Yeah. yeah, and so for even for me thinking about being a historian, right, I'm, and always when I look at photographs, I'm interested in the image of the photograph, but I'm also interested in the photo as an object because you learn so much from its very objectness. You see if there's stuff written on the back. You, see, you can look, like, where has it been? What's happened to it? Is it folded? Is it crumpled? You know, you just learn all of this stuff. And the problem of dematerializing images is you don't get that anymore unless someone's put metadata in, and then who knows how reliable that is, and you're just not, it's just not there. So I really identify with your plea to understand the kind of materiality of video. The thing I would add to that, which is anecdotal, but they really for a long time thought that this was going to be on Laserdisc. And so it would have been a laser discotheque, which would have been a very different type of institution um, and perhaps just didn't have as kitschy of a name. That's why. But also, oh, and the other thing, like, you know, those videotapes are gone, right? They didn't keep those videotapes. So there's a whole archive in a way that is just no longer there, because as a material archive, that would have been a really interesting thing to, to get into. So. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Desi Gonzalez, uh, CMS grad student, and um, I, Ian, thanks for summarizing those three points again, because I think you pointed out that the first year are really about the technology and the third is sort of about how, how people view things, um, and it's something that you talked about a little bit, um, especially when you were talking about... Um, the idea that people, you know, becoming social at the end, that mm -hmm. we've always been learning the social way, we needed, they thought we needed a way to, to <coughs> take in these documents in an in individual way, but actually it's reverted back to the social. Uh, but in terms of, I guess my question is, um, what kind of thinking, or do you know if there's any other research, have you done any research on the thinking that was going into this institutionally when they were deciding what to, how to present it, uh, this idea that it was going to be a more solitary experience, um, and or what were they? What were they? What were they thinking about in terms of like what uh, users, visitors, viewers' needs are, or mm -hmm. how they actually want to to use these materials? Yeah. Um, so the sources I have, and I cited a lot of them, are like writings by the director. I have um, I've been in the archives that are at the Archive de Paris. Uh, for the institution, so you get letters back and forth between various officials talking about what they're going to do. Occasionally you have like little scraps of paper that you have to decipher, like what are they talking about? Um, and then kind of user and experiences, as well as studies about who their users are. So really when they're talking about what sort of experience do we want to have for these people, they're citing all this literature about memory. Like the kind of in the dossiers, in the, in the folders in the Archive de Paris are this 
90-page report about whether or not Paris is losing its memory. So that's, it's this kind of insistence on this. And they also go to media techs. So they go to media techs in Belgium, because Belgium has really advanced media techs at the time. Uh, and they're looking at how people consume uh, materials there. Uh, and so those are their kind of points of reference, I think. Uh, and it is, it does, to me, it just is so infiltrated with this discourse about memory that it, it reads like that to me as a, as a backlash. And that I don't see anything else in there about, about ideal users. Is that true? No, because they also think that um, scholars are going to be really interested in this, and then they're not. Um, and so they have a kind of, uh, they have a bourse where you can go, you can, uh, like a fellowship where you can go and be a scholar in residence, supposedly, and have your station in the reading room that you would have constant access to, but it seems like that falls away pretty quickly because scholars don't go and use it. And then when you, by the time you get this reading room, right, there are no plugs. You can't plug in your computer. It's dark. You can't see to take notes. And you're limited to, like, I think it's two hours. So if you're a scholar, and especially if you're a grad student, like, you cannot go and spend all day long watching things. Like, it's not possible. So it's a really, it has become transitioned into being targeted towards amusement rather than kind of study in that way. Yeah. Um, Carrie and then Lara. Um, And Brian, I think, had a question, too. With all of this, um, it it seems that they had all these studies about, you know, losing memory or what memory is and conserving all of this. But was there anything, um, I guess, studied about the demand for this kind of thing? It seems like that would be a a key issue and one of the problems that would make it not successful. I mean, did did they think, okay, we have all these people who really want to watch videos outside of their home um, <laughs> in a dedicated space. Yeah. Was that something? Yeah. So not before. I haven't seen any polling of before the people who might use it, but they take they have statistics of the kind of first years of usage, and what they find is like university students come and watch videos, the unemployed come and watch videos, young men between the ages of 19 and 25 come and watch videos. So it seems to become a place for people who are otherwise. Um, you know, spending a lot of, yeah, like spending a lot of leisure time. And I think that's why they're so insistent on the cable thing, because they have a sense that if you have it on cable, you'll reach this whole other audience, and that there's a demand for these types of documents from a more educated or elite or kind of older population that you just can't have access to. The other big part of their public is, of course, school children, right, who are coming in, and there's a special room for them where their teachers can queue up the documents that they want to watch. So... Forcing a, a type of viewing onto a consumer mm-hmm. that the consumer didn't necessarily ask for or seek out, and, and, and except that people are watching like, videos at home, right? Right. And so they're seeking out that type of viewing, and this just gives them access to a larger mm-hmm. quantity. Um, but yeah, keep going. I interrupted you. No, but it, it just seems that something of the technological nature, especially like a videotech or an internet cafe or something like that, see, or an internet cafe, I would say, is something that seemed to develop more organically, that there was a demand for this. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it did create a sense of community in a way because people were there and communicating with each other. So, yeah, it just, it's it seems like they're, like you said, a lot of problems that made it so it didn't work out, but it like kind of fell in this hole, yeah. not really meeting the demands or imposing a certain 
I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think that they definitely knew who was going to media techs and who would have been watching these at media techs. So it's not totally blind. They're not totally pitching this blind. Mm -hmm. And there are definitely practices of video viewing that are already happening, you know, at home. And so they would have known about things like that as well. But yeah, it's an interesting. Laura. Um, I want to go back a little bit to um, the photograph of the train, the TGV. Yeah. Um, and your, we can do that. Um, and you're using that photograph to sort of uh, almost kind of jump to something and think about the industrial revolution and how that changes our whole relationship to, to media. Uh -huh. And the intention of, or the, the relationship between the TGV and the, and the need for creating a network. Mm -hmm. And, and actually connecting all these different media texts with the text and mm -hmm. so on. Mm -hmm. um, has that failed also, and to what extent? Mm -hmm. And today, are they trying to update themselves? I mean, is there, where are they at? Like, like for the TGV? No. Or for the, <laughs> for the network? Of, for networking, yeah. yeah. So is there an intention to kind of get back on track and to federate research between the videotech and the, you know, INA and all these yeah. things and the Cinémathèque. I mean, is, yeah. there, is, there, uh, is there a network? Yeah. Has this aspect also failed? Or yeah. How, how does that work? So the videotech just really exists outside of... Um, it exists outside of... And I just realized I answered your Cinémathèque question as if you were asking about the Cinémathèque de Paris and not the Cinémathèque Française. Um, but I'll, I can come back to that. Yeah, so the Cinémathèque Française is a different institution founded by Henri Langlois, which is a kind of personal project and has nothing to do with this whatsoever. The Cinémathèque that I described to you is an institutional, is a Parisian institution, which has embedded in this this like kind of history of, um, but sorry, um, but I get, we can come back to that. Um, the Videotech, the Forum des Images kind of exists outside of scholarly bounds. It's not part of kind of networked projects right now because there is a new kind of, um, there's Gallica, which is sharing resources between lots of different French libraries, and that's an online, it's kind of a French response to Google Books, uh, which the Videotech obviously is not part of. But there's also a new catalog that was just launched called uh, Europeana, is that what it's called? Uh, which is, is that, and, and, and that's a kind of Europe, European-wide catalog. It's not a catalog. Is it a, actually, like a database? It's like, the, it's like the digital public library of America. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. It pulls from other places. Yeah. And so now, like, if you go to the BNF, they try to push you into Europeana before you even go to Gallica. The kind of way the hierarchy of databases is set up. Um, but the video tech, like the Forum des Images, really is not part of all of these different European and national networks. Um, so I think, in when it changed its name, and even before that, because it was the kind of, it's a it's an association de, de la loi de 1901, and so it, it kind of exists not as a municipal institution, but as an a kind of nonprofit that gets all of its funding from the city, and so is not quite the same as these kind of uh, institutions of, of learning or of uh, scholarship. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but that's a great question. And also, I kind of, I would, I don't know, I, I uh, imagine a different book project right now, but I think it would be really interesting to work on this kind of networked moment in the 1980s in France, but. That's a different. That's a different project. Um, yeah. Brian, do you want the last question? Did you have a question? I just wanted to make a question on the in a way, 
Bye. I mean, I did want to say, um, I told you should introduce yourself. Sorry, uh, Brian Jacobson, uh, I teach film at the University of St. Andrews. I'm also a CMS alum, 2005. Um, so, uh, Welcome back. Yeah. So, I mean, in part, it seems to me that the video tech kind of came out about it in absolutely the wrong moment because of the emergence of the VCR and the video store in Paris at precisely the right time. Right? They must right. not have quite seen that coming in the way that one might imagine, right? The first uh, VCR is put into France that are at the same time you're describing the creation of the idea of the video tech. And within three or four years later, by 1982, there are giant video stores in Paris. So you don't need to, that kind of desire that one might have had in the uh, in the mid-70s, right, to the late 70s, to be able to go and watch things again, it's no longer necessary to go to because you can just go to one of these giant video yeah. stores in Paris um, and take things out and take them home and watch them yourself. So I wonder, you know, the extent to which the, the video store was kind of an unexpected thing that also threw them off. But I also am just going to point out that it's really interesting uh, thinking about the kind of history and memory that video is having its historical moment right now. Right? There are all these new books and media studies that are the kind of first studies of the history of video stores, right? The moment that video store is dying, right? <laughs> right? But there are all these new books about it, and it seems that somehow we've arrived at the moment when it's time to do the history of video. Um, and I think that tells us something interesting about the kind of academic process and how we arrived at our subjects. But, yeah. Well, it's like archiving the city and images, right? It's disappearing, and now we have to take pictures of it. It's like the video is disappearing, and so now we have to think about it because oh, it's actually interesting. Um, no one ever talks about the video stores being their competition. I think because they have such a rich catalog, right? They don't need to compete with video stores because then they won't be getting the latest releases, but they'll have Lumiere shorts, and you can't rent Lumiere shorts at the video store. <laughs> Sorry? Yeah, the FNAC is not, is not renting them, yeah. Can I ask, just a little, did they no. get films from the Say and Say? Um, like, what is the relationship with the Say and Say? Yeah, did they? Institution. You would think that if they needed images from France, they would have to get them from the Say and Say, which was the day that they got. Yeah. Uh, they do get some. I mean, the problem is that all of these institutions don't want to just give things to the video tech because then people will never frequent them. Um, and so there are kind of negotiated, long negotiations between INA, the Sansei, um, and they get, they're often get, are getting things not from the Sansei, but directly from the producers because the Sansei doesn't actually own the rights to them. So they have to clear the rights anyways with Pate or Gaumont or... Uh, defunct houses of production. And that's why they have that big database, the Juris database, because they have to constantly keep track of these rights. And it's incredibly hard. Like, I've emailed them before asking about getting stills for publications, and they won't, they won't give them up. They won't give anything. So they're really, um, they protect their rights holders much more than a lot of institutions do. Well, as you saw, the food is here. Uh, so, <laughs> so there will be food, and we can continue the discussion. But first, thank you very much, Catherine. Thank you.